Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week we choose a noteworthy new sports book, and we interview the author. This week we are looking at the life of one of the most accomplished and most influential American athletes of the 20th century. Our guest is Don Van Natta, a Pulitzer Prize-winning national correspondent for the New York Times. We will be discussing his new book, Wonder Girl, The Magnificent Sporting Life of Babe Diedrich Zaharias. When sports writers compile their lists of all-time greatest athletes, there is typically one woman's name near the top, alongside Ali and Pele, Jesse Owens, and Jim Thorpe. According to Don Van Atta's biography, Babe Diedrichsen Zaharias fully deserves her place in the pantheon of sports immortals. In fact, he argues that she should be considered for the highest pedestal. Certainly no other athlete, woman or man, can match Babe's achievements across a range of sports. She earned All-America honors as an AAU basketball player. She finished first in six events at the AAU National Track Championships, winning the team title single-handedly. She won two golds and a silver at the 1932 Olympics and is still the only athlete ever to medal in running, jumping, and throwing events. And then she turned to golf. In a Hall of Fame career, she won close to 50 tournaments and helped found the Ladies Professional Golf Association. I spoke with Don only a few days before he was scheduled to participate in ceremonies marking the 100th anniversary of Babe's birth. As he says in the interview, it is his hope that these centenary events and his own book will help spark new interest in this important figure in American sports history. Certainly, Babe's athletic feats are worthy of attention. And this account of her life, with all of its high points and its blemishes, makes for a great story. I enjoyed reading the book and talking with Don about it. So let's go to the interview. Don, welcome to New Books and Sports. Thank you for joining me on the program. Thank you, Bruce. Great to be with you. I'll begin by asking a bit about yourself, and and I'll give something of your credentials. You've been a correspondent with the New York Times since 1995. Before that, you were with the Miami Herald. And I would say that in your career as a reporter, you've accomplished probably what journalism students dream about. You've covered major political events. You've covered the controversy surrounding the U.S. war on terror. You have been part of Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative teams. But then your first book, First Off the Tee, was a history of U.S. presidents as golfers. And now we have your biography of Babe Diedrichsen. So I'll ask you what draws you from the the hard-nosed work of investigative journalism into writing about sports. I'm a lifelong sports fan, probably a frustrated would-be sports writer who loves to escape uh, the hard-nosed type of reporting that I have to do uh, from 9 to 5 and find uh, softer, more fun subjects to write in my books. It's basically an escape. Okay, okay. And what's the story behind this particular book? How did you come to write about Babe Diedrichsen? 
Well, after my first book, First Off the Tee, uh, back in 2004, I was living in London and I was hunting around for another golf book to write. And a friend of mine who's the historian at the United States Golf Association, a man named Rand Jarris, suggested Babe as a biography subject. Rand's hero is Babe Diedrichson, and he said that he felt that there had not been a really terrific narrative-driven book about her wonderful life. And uh, I only vaguely knew about Babe at the time. I vaguely recalled my dad talking about her years ago. And the more I looked into her story, uh, the more inspired I became and the more motivated I became to write her story. Okay. And I'll start the discussion of the book by turning to your epilogue. In that, in that last section, you describe the Babe Diedrichsen Zaharias Museum in Beaumont, Texas, her hometown. And it's clear that you have a fondness for a place where you surely spent a lot of time when you were researching. But at the same time, you re- express regret that this is an unfortunately overlooked place. So can you tell us about uh, the artifacts and the sources that you found at the museum and how, they, how you use them for your book? Well, it's a great first question, Bruce, because actually the research for my book began in Beaumont in the fall of 2004, and one of the first things I did when I got to Beaumont was to visit Babe's Museum, Uh, and I was uh, surprised and a bit saddened to find that the place was empty uh, on a rainy afternoon. Nobody had been there except me, and I was told by uh, a lady who works there that that is relatively common that some days go by and nobody steps foot in the place and I found it as a source of inspiration to uh, try to tell Babe's story uh, to a young generation a new generation of readers the place itself is fascinating it's packed with Babe's gold medals from the Olympics with many trophies that she won during her great golfing career uh, her golf clubs with her name emblazoned on the side her Wilson and Company uh, clubs with Babe Zaharias on the golf bag, great photographs. Uh, there's get well uh, cards and letters that were sent to Babe during her cancer fight in the 1950s. And it was really a, a perfect launching pad for me for the research on my book. And, and the next step after that is I visited Babe's uh, archives at Lamar University, which is part of the University of Texas uh, system right there in Beaumont. There's a special collections department that has all of Babe's letters, uh, many photographs, uh, and many artifacts from uh, her wonderful career, including uh, scrapbooks, which were also very useful in the research for the book. And you were also able to talk with people who knew her personally, right? Yes, I was able to speak to uh, uh, anyone who is surviving uh, Babe's era, uh, her fellow golfers. Uh, There's not many of them left. There's a, a handful of them, but uh, all of those folks um, I was able to interview as well. Okay. So turning to Babe's life and, and throughout the interview, can we call her Babe? You do throughout the book because Babe Diedrichsen Zaharias is, is a mouthful. So, so yes, 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 absolutely. It's much easier just to call her Babe. That's what everybody called her who knew her. So it's, uh, it's easier that way, but it's also appropriate. Yeah. Okay. All right. So turning to Babe's life, I'll, I'll ask you to start to give us something of a sketch of her early years in terms of where she was from, uh, what was her family background, and what was she like as a young girl? She was born in 1911 uh, in Port Arthur, Texas, um, and she was the sixth of seven siblings born to um, her parents who were recent Norwegian immigrants. So she was a first-generation American. 
her parents were uh, poor. Her father was a, a furniture maker, a cabinet maker, her work who worked on ships um, that left uh, Port Arthur. Uh, and uh, she grew up um, in Port Arthur for about four years. And then a hurricane came in 1915, and uh, terrifying, deadly hurricane, actually, that uh, demolished Port Arthur. And her father liked to say the hurricane literally pushed the family inland to Beaumont, Texas. And Beaumont is where Babe and her family settled in 1915, and that's where she grew up. And as a youngster, she was rambunctious. Uh, Babe loved all sports. She was a bit of a daredevil, ran around her neighborhood, uh, in along Doucette Street in Beaumont in her bare feet, always kind of looking for trouble, uh, and very quickly established herself among the children in her neighborhood of being a terrific athlete and an all-sport athlete, good at baseball, at uh, basketball, and at football. So good, in fact, that uh, she didn't play with the girls. She played with the boys, and the boys grudgingly allowed her to play with them because she was so talented. And how did she come to be known as Babe? Because that's uh, there. There are a few bits of misinformation in her biography, and some of which she she planted herself. Where did she get the name Babe? Yes, there's a, that was a great challenge of mine and of her previous biographers is the fact that Babe told a lot of tall tales about her life uh, to reporters, and um, the Babe nickname. Uh, it was uh, reported in previous books and, in, and at the time that Babe was named after Babe Ruth because Babe Diedrichson hit so many home runs, as many as five in one game uh, as a youngster in Beaumont. But that is not true. Babe was called Babe by her mother and father and by her older brothers and sisters when she was born. They called her Baby, and they shortened it to Babe, and that name stuck. Uh, Mildred is her first name, and uh, very early on, um, her family felt that Babe was a more appropriate name for her than Mildred. So in reading these early chapters, when you describe Babe growing up in Beaumont, playing sports with, with boys, I was struck at how familiar her story seemed. And, and I read those chapters, and I recognized I recognized young girls who are in my kids' classes in school, or, or one girl in particular who played on the Little League baseball team that I coached last year. And, and so this is common in just about every community today, that you have one or two girls who are tough, competitive, athletic, whom the boys respect as the best player around. So, so you see something similar, something familiar in Babe's early years, but what sets apart the story of Babe as a girl growing up in Texas in the early 20th century? Well, just the fact that uh, in that era, uh, girls were not expected to be athletes and not expected to be competitive. Uh, they were expected to uh, play, uh, if they were going to play sports, they were going to play sports where people couldn't see them sweat. Uh, there was no Olympics track and field team in the United States, for instance, uh, until 1928 in Amsterdam uh, was uh, that team's debut. That's when Babe was 17 years old. And yet, um, society's expectations for young girls and for how they uh, were expected to behave uh, on playing fields if they competed at all was totally unknown to Babe. She was a self-taught athletic phenom who practiced uh, uh, the high hurdles, for instance, uh, uh, along Doucette Street hopping hedges. 
And um, she did have some coaching in high school. She was a sort of all-sport phenom in high school playing uh, basketball. She was on the golf team, something that she didn't like to talk about. But um, she just had no idea that the, the way she was conducting herself was not the way society expected her to conduct herself. And one thing that you talk about is something unique about her is that she saw sports from a young age as her path in life, as, as her way to get out of her family's humble circumstances. That's right. One of the amazing things about Babe's story is that at the age of 12 or 13, she decided that in her life she was going to become the greatest athlete that ever lived. What's amazing about that is she didn't say the best female athlete. She just said the best athlete. So at a very young age, Babe set out for herself a, an incredible goal. Uh, to be better than Jim Thorpe, to be better than the best athletes of her era, better than Babe Ruth, uh, at a time when there were so few opportunities uh, for a girl and ultimately a young woman um, to distinguish herself in that way. So Babe begins her rise in terms of, of gaining broader attention outside of her hometown by playing AAU basketball for the Employers Casualty Insurance Company of Dallas. And can you explain this system of AAU sports in the early 20th century and how it provided the first stage for Babe's talents? Yes. In uh, Texas and in Oklahoma, the AAU uh, basically was an association of companies, corporations, that had semi-professional basketball teams, women's basketball teams, that were incredibly popular, that drew as many as 5,000 people to gymnasiums to watch young women play basketball. It's pretty amazing when you think about it in 1930, 1931, that that many people would come out uh, to watch young women play semi-professional basketball. Can I jump in and can I jump in and ask why? What do you think was the the reason for the popularity of well, AAU women's basketball? Well, a big reason for the popularity was the fact that the women uh, were initially were wearing bloomers and were covered up quite a bit. But uh, actually, Babe's coach, the leader of the employer's casualty team, a man named Colonel McCombs. Uh, pushed hard for women to wear fewer clothes, to let their legs show, let their arms show. And once that happened, uh, probably not surprisingly, there was a boom in the popularity of uh, women's basketball, and many, many more tickets were sold. And so then how did, uh, uh, how did Babe's team do, and how did she do in this AEU league? Well, she was recruited while she was still playing uh, high school basketball in Beaumont by Colonel McCombs, who came down uh, to Beaumont to meet with Babe's parents and persuade them to allow uh, her parents to let her come to Dallas to work for employers' casualty. What, what happened is all of the women playing semi-professional basketball were uh, employees of these companies, uh, but basically they were being paid to play basketball. And uh, it was Colonel McCombs' goal to win the AAU title. And he was a great recruiter. He had a very good eye for talent, uh, as well as being a market, such a marketing genius. And um, he recruited Babe at, in, in Houston, and she joined the team, and she quickly established herself as the star. She could shoot. She was very, very aggressive, and she played phenomenal defense and was very tough. This was a very tough uh, league where the women would throw elbows, would foul each other very hard, and uh, within a year, the AAU uh, ch- 
champion was employer's casualty, and Babe made the All-American basketball team as well. So as her basketball team is drawing crowds and winning games, Babe begins to act like a star athlete. And And there's a pattern to her behavior that starts here with AAU sports and continues throughout much of her life. And honestly, it's not that pleasant. So could you talk about how she begins to act like a, uh, uh, like a big athlete? Yeah, she acts like a prima donna, uh, almost from the beginning. Um, she is not likable. She gets in the faces of her teammates. Uh, she was a bit of a ball hog on the court. Her teammates at the time said it was Babe's goal was uh, to do whatever was best for Babe. She was not an athlete. Uh, that cared about the team first and her second. Babe always came first, people said. And you're absolutely right. That is a trend that continued uh, for much of her uh, athletic career in every single sport she played. Babe was uh, uh, a braggart. Uh, She was brash. uh, And uh, some in the press uh, very quickly loved it because Babe would tell you what she was thinking, and she had very rough edges and uh, would not check herself. Uh, but it did not win her uh, many fans among her teammates. So the event that brings Babe national attention is the 1932 AAUW Women's Track and Field Championship in at Northwestern University, and her performance at that meet can be counted as one of the the greatest athletic feats in, in modern sports. But it was also something of a, of a publicity stunt, so could you talk about what happened at that meet? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, Colonel McCombs had an idea, and his idea was that he was going to not send. He decided against sending uh, a team of about 15 uh, women from employer's casualty up to Northwestern University to compete at the uh, National Amateur uh, Track and Field Championships. He decided he was just going to send one woman. He was going to try to win the title with Babe alone, and he did that purely for the bonanza of publicity that he knew would come to employer's casualty. He also knew that Babe uh, was distancing herself very rapidly from her teammates and that she had a legitimate chance because she was so multi-talented at track and field at winning the title. So on that day, it was a blazing hot, almost 100-degree day uh, north of Chicago at Northwestern University at Deitch Stadium, when the announcer, the public address announcer, uh, introduced the employer's casualty team, outran Babe with her arms swinging wildly. She was the only member of the team, and the crowd gasped. They were so surprised at the audacity uh, and the chutzpah of this team from Texas sending one woman. I mean, how could one woman win it all? Well, Babe, over the course of three hours, ran from event to event, barely had time to catch her breath, She ended up winning five first-place medals and tied for first with a sixth and single-handedly won the title, just as Colonel McCombs had said she could do. So following on this this performance, this would be a good time to talk about what made her an outstanding athlete or how do we characterize Babe as an outstanding athlete. And and would it be... Uh, is it incorrect to speak of her as a dominating athlete was one thing I was I was reading about. So she was uh, amazing in, in a variety of different sports, yet at the same time she had rivals, she had challengers in, in different events. So it wasn't as if she was uh, defeating her opponents uh, by huge margins. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. No, she, she in fact, she... she 
barely won a number of these events. Um, you know, one or two of them looked to be dead heats. Um, so, no, that's right. As 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 strong as she was, um, and she had natural uh, athletic gifts, uh, but just as important was her work ethic. She worked harder and practiced longer than her uh, competitors. And um, that's a very, very lethal combination, as any great athlete um, over the years has taught us, the Michael Jordans and Muhammad Ali's, all of them, what they all have in common is they're very gifted. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that old term, they're, you know, they're naturals at something. But at the same time, they also work harder. And that's what Babe did. She just practiced and practiced. And she seemed to have a, a competitiveness that was... Uh... Uh, it really distinguished her from her female opponents. Yeah, absolutely. She had a, a, a zeal uh, to win. Um, winning was really the most important thing to her. This is a great quote from Babe, uh, which I use in the very beginning of Wonder Girl, where she says, I don't see any point in playing the game if you don't win. Do you? And, um, and that summed up Babe's philosophy um, in life and also as she competed, um, she was only going to play the game if she was going to win and she was going to do everything possible to win. So Babe single-handedly wins the, the 1932 AAU National Championships and then two weeks later she goes out to Los Angeles to compete in three events at the Olympics. And, and right from the start of the Olympics in Los Angeles, she is the, the celebrity athlete of the Games. Yes, she is the... Um, a star of the games, basically because Grantland Rice, the great Tennessee sports writer, uh, took an immediate liking to Babe and um, and wrote his column about her. Almost almost every time uh, he wrote a column during the Olympics, he was uh, highlighting Babe's uh, athletic prowess, and he really put her on the map um, nationally. Okay, and and. Newspaper, other newspaper writers, in addition to to Grantland Rice, they declare her after the games as the greatest athlete, the greatest female athlete in the world. But as you explain, it's not long afterwards that um, sports writers begin to criticize her, and in particular, they begin to raise questions about her uh, her gender and her sexuality. Could you talk about this reaction in the media to Babe in in 1932 and afterwards? Yeah, after Babe won uh, two Olympic gold medals and a silver medal, uh, and, and, and as you say, was declared the greatest woman athlete in the world, uh, the press, with the exception of Rice, quickly turned on her. Uh, Paul Gallico for the New York Daily News and several other leading national sports columnists began questioning uh, well, just how hard it was, actually, that Babe did what she did at the Olympics. They uh, were critical of that. They were critical of of a babe herself and of her they questioned her gender and whether she was really a woman they questioned her sexual orientation and and there were whispers about that and uh joe williams one of the columnists said that uh babe competed simply for making up for the fact that she failed at the game of man snatching so the press turned very very harshly against her uh, at, at a time when it really should have been sort of a honeymoon period for Babe as she was trying to figure out her next move as a woman athlete. So is this something that stuck with her throughout her career, this uh, negative view by some members of the press toward her? 
Yes, it followed her throughout the 30s, 40s, and even into the 50s, um, where there were just some sports writers who didn't take her seriously, who uh, didn't like her style, um, thought that women athletes should keep their mouths shut, shouldn't brag, should look pretty. There was a lot of criticism in the press of just Babe's looks, which, you know, she had uh, only a limited amount of control over. Uh, they talked about the fact she was ugly, her mouth was a slit, her nose, she had a hawk nose, and all these things were deeply hurtful to Babe. Um, but she didn't uh, shrink like maybe some uh, competitors would have. She actually got even more determined to go out and try to find a place to play. And at the same time, among other women athletes, she wasn't well-liked as well either. No, she wasn't. Uh Many women athletes, um, either Babe's teammates, like on the Olympic track and field team, uh, they, they did not want Babe to be the captain, for instance, and they got together and made sure that didn't happen, uh, as well as her competitors later on, in golf, especially in golf. Uh, but even in barnstorming baseball, uh, Babe was not well-liked. Um, her personality just rubbed people the wrong way. Her ego was so enormous and people saw her as selfish and only out for herself, and they didn't like that. So a larger question that Babe faced after the 1932 Olympics is this question of, of what does she do now? She's, she's the world's greatest woman athlete, but there are few options for a female professional athlete in the 1930s. So what did Babe try to do uh, to meet this goal she had set out to make a living as an athlete? Well, she uh, was quite confused. And uh, she kept going through her mind various options, maybe coaching track and field or coaching basketball, uh, possibly um, golf or tennis. Uh, she gravitated toward vaudeville because uh, it was an easy way to make uh, a pretty good living during the Depression. She made $1,200 in a week of shows that she did uh, at the Palace Theater in Chicago. And she was quite good at vaudeville, too. She sang and uh, she played her harmonica. She hit plastic golf balls into the crowd. She got very good notices in the press, uh, but she gave it up because it wasn't real competition. It was performing for money, but not competing. Um, in particular, she didn't like the fact that she had to run a rigged race against a stagehand on, uh, on a treadmill. That really bothered her. So she gave up vaudeville, even though there were uh, more um, bookings waiting for her in New York. And uh, she played billiards against a uh, female billiards champion at the, at the time. She played uh, some basketball, some semi-professional basketball, uh, and uh, had her eye on golf and was thinking about uh, going toward golf. Um, and, uh, but before that, she went on a barnstorming tour with a baseball team. And this is one of the chapters of Babe's life that I really love. She was a member of the House of David barnstorming baseball team. These were men with beards who played something called donkey baseball, where they would ride donkeys from home plate uh, around the base paths. And it was during her time with the House of David team where Babe really uh, was disillusioned with her choices in life and where she ended up. Uh, she felt she had really just become nothing more than a sideshow, and, uh, and that's when she really became serious about golf. So what, how did she initially discover golf? Well, she played golf in high school. This is another uh, interesting thing about Babe. She didn't want anybody to know that. Um, she told a lot of different stories about uh, discovering golf later in life after her Olympic success. 
um, but but in fact she she played in in high school. Uh, but when she got serious about golf, um, Grantland Rice was one of the people who urged her to try to take on golf. In fact, he, she played with him right after the Olympic Games, and as well as several other sports writers in Los Angeles in a, in a very famous round. Uh, Babe got very, very serious. She took uh, formal training uh, not only in Dallas, but also uh, moved, after she moved out to California with a golf instructor named Stan Curtis, who, was, uh, uh, who did a lot for her game in a very short amount of time. And she also had, right from the start, a, a remarkable natural talent at the game. Yes. Uh, she had a rhythmic swing that was the envy of anybody uh, who saw it. She just had great timing. Uh, very, very soft hands. She was a long hitter off the tee. Could hit longer than any women of her era. She just boomed the ball 250 yards. Uh, and then, and then yet, at the same time, had this uh, wonderful short game uh, and, and, a, and a terrific putting stroke. Uh, and so, you know, you put all those together and you're going you're gonna to be putting up some very low, lethal scores. So she begins competing in, in golf tournaments in 1934, but still, in women's golf, she's faced with this issue of being a professional as opposed to having amateur status. And could you explain uh, something in the background situation in women's golf when Bay begins playing in the 1930s? Well, in the 1930s, most of the tournaments in women's golf, in fact, nearly all of them, uh, were amateur events. There weren't that many of them on the calendar. Uh, there was only one professional event at the time. Uh, Babe started as uh, an amateur but she had this background, of course, where she was paid to play. Uh, Babe's first real success as an amateur was in 1935. Uh, she played in, a, uh, in the Texas Women's uh, Open uh, against a high society woman named Peggy Chandler. This was a tournament held in Houston in 35. And Peggy Chandler um, was a very wealthy, very glamorous uh, three-time champion of this tournament. And Babe uh, was the total opposite of Peggy Chandler. She came from the wrong end of Beaumont, Texas. And Peggy Chandler and her friends looked down their noses at Babe. In fact, uh, Ms. Chandler said before uh, the tournament, we don't need any truck driver's daughters in this tournament. So they looked down at Babe, and, uh, and, and yet Babe won. It was a huge upset, and it put Babe on the map. Uh, but uh, Mrs. Chandler and her friends were so upset about that, they then complained to the United States Golf Association for the USGA to revoke Babe's amateur standing because she had been paid to play other sports in the past, and that's exactly what happened. And Babe got knocked out of amateur golf, which for all intents and purposes put her on the sidelines because there was only one professional tournament every year that she could play in. But she did continue to play golf, and in, in, she became quite popular on the charity circuit, correct? Yes, on the exhibition circuit and on the charity circuit, Babe became a big draw uh, during that lull period in her career where she couldn't compete as an amateur. She toured with Gene Sarazen, who was one of the great golfers of his era, uh, you know, a, a terrific golf champion. And uh, Sarazen and Diedrichsen uh, really... Um, Wowed galleries. Uh, Babe uh, took that vaudeville background out to the links and would tease Sarazen on the first tee. Uh, she'd make fun of him. She'd make fun of herself. She'd tease members of the gallery. And people just loved it. This is something they had never seen before. It was sort of a clown act or a comedy routine uh, out on the links. And they loved the fact that this 
kind of new woman golfer was giving a hard time to one of the best male golfers of the era. So I want to get back to this uh, uh, problem that she had with the, her high society opponent, Peggy Chandler, because this is something that uh, this wasn't a one-time issue in terms of Babe entering into a wholly different social world and encountering the different prejudices and, and issues of propriety, both in terms of class and gender that she had to deal with uh, in the golf world. So how did she react to that? Well, uh, you know, not, not well. Um, she had to tr- sort of soften her image and, uh, and change her image. Um, uh, you know, most of the women that were playing amateur golf at the time uh, were married to wealthy husbands who supported them. Uh, Babe had no such thing. And, uh, and she had to sort of look for ways to fit in to this more genteel, uh, more gilded world of country club golf. And uh, it just so happened that um, she met a woman named Bertha Bowen, who was from Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, Bertha Bowen was a... Um, uh, herself a uh, high society, wealthy uh, woman who uh, belonged to the country clubs in Fort Worth and was an organizer of women's tournaments. Uh, Bertha uh, Bowen and her husband took an immediate liking to Babe, and uh, Bertha Bowen herself actually helped Babe sort of begin to soften her image. So a highlight of the book for me was was your chapter on the 1938 Los Angeles Open, an event on the, the PGA Tour, the men's tour, that Babe enters. And the tournament is notable, not for Babe's play. She, ended up, she ends up missing the cut in the tournament, but because it's here that she meets George Zaharias, who will become her husband. So could you introduce George for us? Because he is a remarkable character. Uh, he is. Uh, I, I fell in love with George in doing this book. He is, he is a larger-than-life, uh, big appetite, uh, all-excess, all-the-time uh, professional wrestler. Uh, his nickname was the Crying Greek from Cripple Creek. He was one of these bad-guy villains of the professional wrestling world who audiences love to hate and who inevitably would get his butt kicked by the end of every wrestling match and would beg for mercy with huge tears rolling down his fat cheeks uh, and, and crowds just loved to laugh at him. As you described, at the Los Angeles Open, the first uh, event on the PGA Tour calendar in January of 1938, it was a promoter's idea to have Babe Dietrichson play, to have this uh, young uh, woman golfer play with the men. And when George Zaharias, who was an amateur and who was playing uh, for the first time, his first time in a PGA Tour event, found out he was going to be teamed up with Babe Dedrickson, he said, well, I don't want to play with some girl. And he almost pulled out of the event. Um, but they met on the first uh, tee. Uh, there's a wonderful photograph uh, of, their, of their meeting when they were first shake hands. And uh, within a few holes, uh, George Zaharias changed his mind about Babe. Um, he didn't want to lose to her, and, and he didn't. He ended up uh, beating her that first round. But, uh, but he had another motive uh, in, in uh, beginning to charm her. He, he actually found her attractive, and she did him. And by the fifth or sixth hole, there was electricity buzzing between them, and they went out on a date that night, and they had a very fast, uh, furious courtship. And uh, just 11 months after that round and meeting for the first time, they were married in St. Louis. So then how did her marriage to Zaharias affect her, her golf career? 
Well, it was a huge help because he was extremely wealthy. Uh, he was paid big money um, for his wrestling performances, and he was beginning to become a wrestling promoter, a big-time wrestling promoter uh, in St. Louis as well as in California. And so uh, she finally had a husband who had the means to support her golf dreams, uh, and they played it for all it was worth with the press. Uh, George Zaharias became very quickly almost a unofficial promoter of Babe's career as well. And what he learned during his wrestling career is the more you perform, the more you're out there uh, showing the public your stuff, the more they like you. And so he began pushing Babe very, very hard to perform, to play exhibitions constantly, even on their honeymoon uh, in Australia. Uh, George booked Babe for a whole bunch of uh, exhibitions that she was uh, that she was paid for, and uh, and, and at the same time with the press, George uh, portrayed Babe as the typical late 30s, early 40s housewife who cooked well for him, cleaned up the house, did the housework, and looked after his every need, and uh, this went uh, even further uh, in softening Babe's image. Um, for uh, for the public than Bertha Bowen was able to do. So another golf tournament that you describe as important in Babe's career is the British Ladies Amateur Championship, which she wins in 1947. And it seemed to me that this event was comparable to her track performances in 1932 in terms of bringing her uh, to national attention. Yes. Uh, at the time, Babe was, uh, was in the midst of a uh, consecutive tournament winning streak, um, and it was George uh, who uh, pushed Babe to go to the United Kingdom, to Scotland, for the 1947 British Women's Amateur Championship uh, to not only continue her streak, but to, uh, more importantly, try to become the first woman, a uh, first American woman to win the title. Uh, and uh, Tommy Armour, who was uh, uh, another uh, instructor of Babe's, also urged her to go, and she did. And you're absolutely right. She um, wowed uh, the British Isles in her time there. Uh, she played phenomenally well, um, but it was her personality and her openness and her humor uh, and, um, and, and, and actually some ev- even do, doing trick shots uh, that, that really won over the crowd. And uh, even though she was an American, uh, she became sort of the home course favorite. And she ended up winning the tournament, uh, and it really brought her even more fame, um, not just in the U.K., but uh, back in the United States and all over the world. And would it be accurate then to say that this is something of a, of a prelude to uh, her role in the founding of the Women's Professional Golf Tour in the United States, the LPGA? Very much so, yes, because when she returned to the United States, uh, she was given a heroine's welcome uh, in New York and also in her hometown at the time of Denver, where she was given a 15-foot-high key to the city. Uh, it was around that time that Fred Corcoran, who was a, um agent to uh, some of the great baseball stars of the era, uh, took on Babe uh, as a client and began thinking about, along with George and with a couple of other uh, corporate sponsors, uh, a place, a, a, a permanent sort of tour similar to what the men had for the women, and Babe was going to be um, the star of that tour. In fact, the LPGA in large part was founded uh, as a way to showcase Babe's talents. 
And then how did she, in uh, and, and looking at her performance in the early years of the LPGA, she was not only uh, the most popular golfer, the biggest draw, but she was also uh, the most successful by far, correct? She was. She was the leading money winner in the first several years of the tour, um, and she also was the biggest audience draw, so much so that some uh, tournament organizers were paying Babe $1,000 under the table just so she would show up, because when Babe showed up, many more tickets were sold. I mean, she really was the Tiger Woods um, of her era uh, in the women's game and put it on the map. And, uh, and of course, this created a lot of resentment among the women on the tour uh, who challenged Babe. Uh, at some of those early LPGA meetings, they were quite chaotic affairs where uh, the women said things like, hey, Babe, we're nothing but pigeons here. You're getting wealthy and we're not. And Babe gave it right back to them and said to them, you know, you know how like in the movies when you go to the movie theater and you look at the marquee and the star's name is the biggest on the marquee? Well, I'm the star and my name is biggest because that's the way it's supposed to be. That You know, the, the people are paying to see me, not you. I mean, she was very, very outspoken and blunt uh, with these other uh, early founders and early pioneers of the women's game uh, of golf in the United States. And, and George, her husband, didn't, uh, he didn't smooth things over. No, he didn't. George made things worse. Uh, he exacerbated a pretty bad situation uh, himself, uh, you know, swearing at the women a couple of <laughs> meetings. I mean, he was, he was, you know, and he, and George, in his mind, George was, was the founder of the LPGA. I mean, it wasn't Babe or the, or these other women that, that uh, co-founded it. He, he felt like he had built it himself. And uh, so he he was uh, he created quite a stir at some of these meetings that he was at. And at the same time, a backdrop to this is Babe was uh, George was gaining weight. Uh, it was now over three hundred pounds, uh, and Babe's marriage to George was becoming strained, um, very much so. Uh, partly because George just did whatever he wanted to do. Partly because George was. Uh, so, driving uh, Babe so hard to almost to the point of exhaustion. Uh, and he also controlled the purse strings um, in their marriage, something that uh, Babe was uh, growing increasingly resentful about. And he had a drinking problem. And he had a drinking problem, and uh, uh, he was often uh, drunk. There was uh, an anecdote told to me where uh, a woman counted 22 bottles of beer. <sighs> Uh, on the table, uh, and, uh, and and he also roughed up Babe. Something that I uh, had found had found out that I don't believe has been reported previously is that uh, uh, he would uh, throw her to the ground and uh, become physically abusive with Babe when he was drinking heavily. So I want to turn to Babe's struggle with cancer, which she was diagnosed with in 1953, and her illness sets the stage for her last remarkable athletic accomplishment, but it also brings about a change of character. Yes, that's right. Uh, Babe was diagnosed with cancer in the spring of 1953. Doctors told her at the time that she would never play professional or competitive golf again. And uh, she believed it for a day or two. She tried to give her golf clubs away to Bertha Bowen's husband. Uh, but she quickly changed her mind about that, and uh, while a lot of people around her were saying she wasn't going to play golf again, she predicted she was going to play again and win again. And uh, so she had a colostomy in April of 1953 and uh, attempted a comeback, and remarkably, uh, 15 months after that major surgery, 
with a colostomy bag strapped to her side, Babe won the U.S. Women's Open by 12 strokes, which is a demolition of the field uh, that's remarkable, uh, really, really incredible. One of the one of the greatest uh, margins of victory uh, in U.S. Women's Open history, and. There was a change. Uh, Babe became an anti-cancer crusader, and after that victory, she shared in that triumph uh, with her doctors and also with the thousands of strangers around the country who were inspired by Babe's comeback and had written her uh, cards and letters and get well wishes. And she shared that victory with all those strangers, which was uh, really a transformation in Babe's character because for so long it had been all about Babe and finally she uh, gave credit for her success to, to uh, thousands of strangers. And she continued to compete after her, her victory in the Open and even though people suggested to her that she retire. So what was it that drove her to, uh, to continue to compete after her cancer surgery? She saw it as... Um, a way to buck up other people with cancer, trying to live normal lives uh, with cancer. She really saw herself as a role model. Uh, and in many ways, she was. Um, at the time, in the 40s and 50s, when public figures, when most public figures got cancer, they were not public about it. Um, the public didn't know that Babe Ruth had cancer until after he died. Babe Ruth and his family kept it a secret, um, and nobody knew it until after his death in 1947. Babe was very open, very public uh, about her cancer, raised money for cancer research. Uh, she went to the White House uh, to raise money uh, alongside uh, President Eisenhower and his wife. And she felt that her uh, continuing to play uh, was important um, as a role model uh, and for other people to give them strength who were battling the disease. So I'm going to pass over Babe's final illness and her death in 1956, but I do want to uh, to compliment you on these final chapters because I found them to be sincerely moving. You you really did a masterful job in presenting Babe and George as characters in the preceding chapters, so that I, it was it was truly touching and sad to read about her decline and his response to to her illness and death. I, I found those to be uh, um, you know quite quite moving uh, chapters that you wrote. Well, thank you. That's nice to say. I appreciate that. But, but turning from the end of her life, I want to ask you about her legacy. And uh, the last paragraphs of the book just juxtapose the humble, overlooked museum to Babe that you described earlier with, next to it is a soccer field, and you describe a visit to the museum, and, and you wandered out into the park, and you see these eight- and nine-year-old girls playing soccer. And, and you write at the end, it would be lovely if a few of these girls did know Babe's name. And so I'll ask you, in, in your view, what is the role that Babe Diedrichsen had in the history of women's athletics? Uh, enormous. It cannot be overstated. Um, Babe uh, was a pioneer in so many ways. Uh, I believe that she's one of the founding mothers of Title IX, of giving uh, young girls and young women uh, an equal opportunity to compete in any sport that they choose to compete in. And um, uh, it was Babe's great desire to play all sports that I believe helps uh, young girls today and young women today play in any sport that they choose. I mean, Babe's lesson, uh, I think, for uh, 
girls uh, today is to never give up, never let anybody tell you uh, who you are or who you can be, uh, and, uh, and 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 work hard and have fun and and do what you want to do. And those are uh, profoundly important lessons today. Um, but the fact that Babe did those things in an era when it was almost impossible for a woman to do them makes her story even more remarkable. So I want to ask a related question, and, and uh, uh, as you talk about the end of the book, observing these eight- and nine-year-old girls playing soccer, at which we see all over the country, all kinds of sports are open to girls now. There, there's women athletics in college, even professional leagues. But I was thinking about this in reading. How would an athlete of Babe Diedrichson's gifts fit into today's much more developed world of women's athletics? In other words, would Babe Diedrichson... Babe Diedrichsen, excuse me, have become a standout athlete today um, when there are thousands of girls competing and training in sports? I, I believe that she would have because of her uh, natural athletic ability combined with her incredible work ethic. However, it might have been more difficult for Babe to become an all-sport athlete because you know, as you know, uh, when a girl becomes good at one particular sport, that's what she sticks with. That becomes her specialization. And sports now are uh, very regimented. And, and as soon as uh, any a young person, whether they be a, a boy or a girl, proves their talent at one thing, that's usually what they stick with. Certainly there are some uh, young girls and, and young women who play maybe two or three sports. Uh, but um, that, that's rare. And they played all those sports out of necessity. She um, uh, tried them all because she was trying to find a place to make a living. And um, so, uh, you know, you raise a, you raise a great question. I, one, one of the things that I'm struck by is that in, in American sports in recent years, uh, a two-sport athlete, a male two-sport athlete, is something that really fires the American imagination. Mm -hmm. Look at Michael Jordan, for instance. He's the best basketball player of all time. Well, he decides to go play minor league baseball in Birmingham, Alabama for a year. He hits 205, and then he goes back to the NBA and wins a couple more championships. But people love that idea that the great Michael Jordan would try to master another sport. And Deion Sanders and Bo Jackson are two other great athletes who played two sports, and Americans loved it. Well, Babe played all the sports, not just two, and she excelled at all of them. So if Babe were alive today, and if she somehow could play, could have played all the sports, her fame would know no bounds. She would be known all over the world, and she would have a monstrous Jordan-sized sneaker contract. <laughs> because, you know, I mean, think of it. It's just, uh, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's mind-boggling what she was able to accomplish. So we're almost out of time, and in closing, I, we should note that this, uh, this week, is the 100th anniversary of Babe Diedrichsen's birth. And I know that you're involved in the commemoration, so I want to ask what, uh, uh, what festivities, what commemorations are planned for, uh, for the 100th anniversary? Well, in uh, Beaumont, Texas, and in Port Arthur, Texas, uh, they, uh, in both places, the city councils declared uh, this particular month as Babe Diedrichsen's Zaharias Month uh, on June 26th, the 100th uh, centennial uh, of, of uh, Babe's birthday. Tampa is uh, declared uh, June 26th, Babe's Harriest Day. I was in Beaumont a week or so ago 
uh, for book signing and for events uh, there. Uh, Thirteen young golfers won the first Babe Diedrichson Zaharias Award along with the organization First Tee, uh, and I spoke at a dinner there and did a book signing. And then this coming weekend, I'll be in Tampa uh, for a book signing as well as uh, speaking uh, on the day that uh, they declare uh, Babe Zaharias Day. So I'm, I'm excited about the trip to Tampa coming up. And lastly, I see in your acknowledgments section that you're working on a new sports book. Can you tell us what you're working on now? Yes, I'm writing a biography of Sid Gilman, uh, the great uh, AFL coach uh, and one of the pioneers of, uh, maybe the pioneer of the West Coast offense. Um, the book is tentatively going to be called The Mastermind. And like Babe, Gilman was an inspirational, pioneering figure uh, in American football. The, the football that uh, we football fans watch uh, every Sunday in the NFL. Um, the way it's played is is in large part um, a product of the imagination of Sid Gilman. And one of the best things about Gilman is he has a coaching tree uh, that he's mm-hmm. on the top of, and 20 of his coaching disciples have uh, have won Super Bowls, mm-hmm. which is pretty amazing. Yeah, huh, that's interesting. That's uh, quite a jump from. Uh Babe Diedrichson, but no, I, I know of Sid Gilman, and that sounds like it would be a fascinating book. So, But I want to thank you, Don, for uh, uh, for be- being on the show, and uh, this was really a, an enjoyable book. As I said earlier, the, the last chapters were touching. There were funny chapters. There were great characters. Uh, you really made Babe and George and, and this whole period come alive, and um, and I know your interest, and I, I I hope with the 100th anniversary of, of Babe's birth that there is renewed attention uh, to her as, a, as an important figure in, in American sports history. And I know that that's part of your aim in writing this book is that, that people do uh, look to her and recognize her accomplishments and, and what she did for, uh, for American sports. Well, thank you for saying that, and you, you know, you're helping that effort. That is definitely uh, the mission, a big part of why I did the book. Um, another big part is just it's a great story, and uh, uh, and writers and journalists uh, and authors look for the best stories they can tell, and this is this is one of the best that I've come across. So, uh, I, I do hope um, that the book uh, gets gets an audience and gets attention, and uh, and you've helped that. So, I thank you for your time. Yeah, I highly recommend it, and uh, and I'll tell listeners the story that I've already told Don. I was reading the book uh, while sitting in the bleachers at a Little League baseball game, and I was reading passages to my to my twelve year old daughter. And as I was reading passages about Babe's life, uh, one of the moms was leaning over so she could hear so she could hear what I was uh, what I was reading. So. Uh, so do get this book. It's it's uh, a fun read, and uh, I learned a lot. And uh, it's a credit to you, Don, that she was such a prickly character. <laughs> she was really an unlikable character, and yet, uh, as a reader, I was continued uh, to be drawn forward by her story. Well, thanks. Uh, it's funny. My wife, uh, who read, uh, was the first reader of, of the manuscript when I finished it. Uh, that was her comment. Uh, she was telling me in the early chapters and even in the middle, she said, you know, uh, a lot of what Babe does, I don't like. But then she said, but I still find myself liking her and rooting for mm-hmm. her. So it, it was. It was a challenge uh, as a writer, uh, but I didn't want to sugarcoat it. I didn't want to write a hagiographic account of Babe. I really wanted to tell her story as truthfully as I could. And uh, she was a tough person to like, but the way she was, 
in large part, was um, the fuel of her success. She needed, I think, to be that way, to be uh, as great as she ended up being as an athlete. Well, congratulations again on the book, and thank you for appearing on New Books and Sports. Thank you, Bruce. I enjoyed it very much. You have been listening to an interview with Don Van Natta about his book, Wonder Girl, The Magnificent Sporting Life of Babe Diedrichsen Zaharias, published in 2011 by Little Brown and Company. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers more than 70 channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications. You can find podcasts on new books in art and history, technology, and world affairs. If you like what you heard here, please link to the Facebook page for New Books and Sports, where you can give us your feedback, get announcements of new interviews, and find links to thoughtful sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening and enjoy your week.